David Hughes said of Inspector Ghoul, if he investigated Eva's death before it happened, he must be some kind of premonition, a supernatural figure. The clue is in the name, Inspector Ghoul. So maybe he isn't physical now, not solid at all. So what is he then? His final speech makes use of Christian imagery. We don't live alone, we are members of one body. As well as prophetic warnings which remind us of the Old Testament, that a time will come when men who ignore his warning will be taught it in fire and blood and anguish. As this language is also being used to enforce the author's socialist concerns, is the inspector also, in a sense, priestly himself? Is the inspector nemesis, the spirit of divine retribution in classical mythology, punishing those who suffer from hubris? Is the inspector the conscience of each of the Burlings, voicing the moral sense that they have each submerged? Is the inspector God, coming to us on the day of judgment when all things shall be brought to light? He is all of these things. He is no longer solid at all. He is spirit, reminding the Burlings and the audience that not everything in this world is solid, material and ripe for conquest and possession. Now that's a very complicated quote, but it's an important one. Because the role of the inspector is something that ever since the first performance of J.B. Priestley's and Inspector Calls, audiences and critics have been debating. In this podcast, I'm going to take you through what this quotation means and how the inspector can be interpreted in all of these different ways and more. Firstly, let's examine the idea of the inspector as a supernatural presence. Many critics have noted his name contains two supernatural references, spectre and ghoul, both meaning ghostly figure. He also appears and disappears from the lives of the Burlings in an almost ghostly manner. In fact, it is Eric who notes, You told us that a man has to make his own way look after himself and mind his own business, and that we weren't to take any notice of these cranks who tell us that everybody has to look after everybody else, as if we were all mixed up together. Do you remember? Yes. And then one of those cranks walked in. The inspector. Here, he is addressing Mr Burling and referring to the speech he gave at the beginning of Act 1, just before the inspector's appearance. Arthur warned the younger men of the dangers of socialist cranks, and then, just moments later, an alleged police inspector embodying those same socialist values materialises without warning. It is almost as if Burling's speech has summoned the inspector's ghoulish presence. Sheila says it's queer, very queer, when she hears this news, meaning a strange or unusual occurrence. And he certainly seems to have some supernatural knowledge, knowing what characters will say or do before they do. And his appearance does seem to have an almost haunting effect on the family. So, what about the religious imagery alluded to in the quotation? Well, some people think the inspector serves such a highly moral purpose in the text that he could be regarded as a symbolically religious figure, like an angel. He did seem to watch over Eva Smith, although he was sadly unable to protect her from the carelessness and the cruelty of the Burlings. And he did provide some prophetic messages. He warned the family, and I tell you that the time will soon come when, if men do not learn that lesson, they will be taught it in fire and blood 
and anguish. Here, the language and imagery the inspector uses is evocative of traditional biblical imagery. For example, in the first book of Revelation 8-7, it says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. Similarly, in the Acts of Apostles 2.19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. We see this biblical imagery again when the inspector tells the Burling family, we don't live alone, we are members of one body, we are responsible for each other. Here, he seems to reference the 1 Corinthians 12.12, titled One Body with Many Members, which uses the imagery of people being parts of a body just like the inspector has. It says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. In fact, when you begin to examine the text through a religious lens, there are some clear parallels between the moral messages of Christianity and those which appear in the text. If you look at the actions of the Burling family, for example, we can certainly make comparisons between their poor treatment of Eva Smith and women like her and the seven deadly sins in the Bible. Starting with gluttony, the play opens with the characters at a dinner party, eating lavish food, dessert, champagne and port. Moving on to greed, we see greed evidence certainly in the character of Arthur Burling and Gerald Croft, who talk about lower costs and higher prices and appear to put profit before people. Envy is most evident in the character of Sheila, who really only seems to make a complaint about Eva Smith because she's jealous of her appearance and wishes that she looked like her when she tries the dress on in Millwood's. Lust is clear in the characters of Eric and Gerald, who both only get close to Eva because they find her attractive, then use her and cast her aside. And finally, pride. Pride is perhaps the most harmful deadly sin evident in the text. It's what stops Sybil and Arthur Burling from accepting their role in Eva's demise and taking responsibility for their actions. In fact, both only seem to be concerned about the impact the consequences will have on their own lives, reputations and status. So although An Inspector Calls is not an explicitly religious text and J.B. Priestley was not an explicitly religious man, there are certainly some parallels to be drawn between the moral messages that the inspector brings to the Burling family and the language and imagery he uses to deliver them. Moving away from Christianity for a moment, what about the references to Greek mythology that David Hughes makes in his initial quotation? He talks about the Greek goddess Nemesis. So Nemesis was the goddess of vengeful fate, rightful retribution or revenge. Her name comes from a rough translation of to give what is due from Greek to English. Essentially, Nemesis was in charge of enacting what we call divine retribution, which is using God-given powers to punish human beings who step out of turn and demonstrate something we call hubris, which is excessive pride. Just as we discussed when considering the parallels of the actions of the Burlings and the seven deadly sins, excessive pride is exhibited by a number of characters. This has led some critics to believe that Inspector Ghoul is a nemesis-like figure, harnessing the power of divine retribution to make the Burlings face up to the consequences of their all-encompassing pride. <laughs> so, 
So, although it's evident that there is a range of religious and mythological imagery used in an inspector calls, this does not seem to be the staunch underpinning of J.B. Priestley's writing of the text. So what was his moral message and where did it derive from? Well, you should be aware by now that J.B. Priestley was a committed socialist, meaning he believed in the equal distribution of wealth and resources between people and wanted to dismantle systems like capitalism and class division. And we very much see these same beliefs reflected through the character of the inspector. In fact, many people have argued that J.B. Priestley uses Inspector Gould as his mouthpiece in the play, espousing those socialist egalitarian values that he was so passionate about. Let's look at some key quotations. The inspector tells the Burling family, It would do us all a bit of good if sometimes we tried to put ourselves in the place of these young women, counting their pennies in their dingy little back bedroom. Here, he is urging the Burling family to develop empathy for the working classes and understand the trials and tribulations that they face. Similarly, he tells Mr Burling, public men, Mr Burling, have responsibilities as well as privileges. Here, he is highlighting the inequality of class division that J.B. Priestley felt so strongly about, telling the upper classes to not simply enjoy the comforts of their privilege, but to use their power and their status and their wealth to support those most in need of help. Although we have already discussed the religious undertones and imagery of the inspector's final speech, it's important to view it again through this socialist lens. He says, Remember this, one Eva Smith has gone, but there are millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths still left with us with their lives, their hopes and fears, their suffering and chance of happiness, all intertwined with our lives and what we think and say and do. We don't live alone. We are members of one body. We are responsible for each other. This is a staunchly socialist message because the inspector is advocating the virtues of ideas such as mutual aid, cooperation, society, community, egalitarianism, equality, and social responsibility. It's essentially the complete opposite to the speeches Mr Burling gave at the beginning of the play, in which he decided that community was nonsense and that people weren't all mixed up together like bees in a hive. Just as Mr Burling is essentially a representation of capitalism within the text, the inspector can be viewed as a representation of socialism and, therefore, a representation of J.B. Priestley's own values. So what of this more complex and abstract idea that the inspector is in fact a representation of the conscience of the Burling family? Well, we see some of this come through at the end of Act 1 in the conversation between Gerald and Sheila, when Sheila has found out that Gerald has had an affair with Eva Smith or Daisy Renton. Gerald says, so for God's sake, don't say anything to the inspector. Sheila says, about you and this girl? Gerald, yes, we can keep it from him. And Sheila says while laughing hysterically, Why, you fool, he knows. Of course he knows. And I hate to think how much he knows that we don't know yet. You'll see. You'll see. Here, Sheila is becoming aware of what the audience may already have known. The inspector is a kind of omniscient character, which means all-seeing. 
He knows what every member of the Burling family has done before he even knocks on the door of their house. It's not like a typical police investigation. He's not asking them questions to try and find out more. He's asking them questions so that they can confront the reality of their actions and the consequences. Before the inspector arrives, not a single member of the Burling family seems to feel any remorse for the way that they've behaved. We have to assume that Eva Smith is not the only person that each individual member of this family has hurt. No, they seem far too comfortable and used to tossing people aside carelessly as if they mean nothing to them. This is standard practice for this family and, Priestley implies, for all the other upper-class families like them. It is only through the arrival of the inspector and the conversations that he has that these characters begin to develop a conscience, a feeling of guilt or remorse for the wrong things that they have done, a developing sense of right and wrong. So in this sense, yes, the inspector does act as that guiding moral voice for the family. However, this only has the desired effect, as we know, on Sheila and Eric. Both of these characters do develop a conscience, they do feel guilt about their actions and they are committed to making a change and behaving with more social responsibility in future. Arthur and Sybil, however, or Mr and Mrs Burling, show no remorse whatsoever. And in fact, once they find out that the inspector was not a real police officer, they are absolutely delighted, almost embarrassingly cheerful, laughing and giggling as though the whole thing was a joke. Mr Burling is described as jovial, meaning happy and cheerful, and says, but the whole thing's different now. Come, come, you can see that, can't you? He even does an impression of the inspector, pointing at his children and mimicking him, saying, you all helped to kill her, then laughing and saying, I wish you could have seen the look on your faces when he said that. Sheila is understandably very disturbed by her father's attitude, saying, it frightens me the way you talk, and you're pretending everything's just as it was before. In the absence of the inspector, those that he had an impression on, the younger generation of Sheila and Eric, have to act as the family's guiding moral conscience when they are not able to develop their own. In this sense, although he has disappeared off stage and has been proved to be, in the eyes of Mr and Mrs Burling and Gerald Croft, a phony or a fraud, the inspector lives on, in the changed attitudes of Sheila and Eric, who will be forever altered by their conversations with him. Once the inspector was no longer able to act as their conscience and their sense of social responsibility, they have developed their own, unlike their parents, who are set in their ways and have not managed to learn lessons from their interactions with the inspector. All that matters to Mr, Mrs Burling and Gerald is whether this man was real or not. They are obsessed with things that are tangible, that they can see and touch and buy and sell. They do not understand the value in things which cannot be seen. Beliefs, ideologies, morals and senses of right and wrong. In fact, this moment is where we see the starkest divide between the characters on stage. The younger generation, the ones the inspector referred to as impressionable, Eric and Sheila, have managed to open their minds and understand that there is value in things which are not directly beneficial to them or their family unit. However, Mr and Mrs Burling and Gerald are still stuck in their ways. As soon as they discover that the inspector was not a real police inspector, 
they no longer see his message as valuable because it can no longer harm them or their reputations or their social standing. So who or what then was this inspector if he wasn't a real police officer? Well, we'll never know. And that's almost the point of it. The inspector can be whatever you want him to be. As long as you understand all the different possible analyses of his role and can make your own conclusion and back it up with evidence from the text, it's entirely up to you. The point is that the inspector is not there to put the family on trial. He is there to try and make them live up to the consequences of their actions, accept social responsibility and make a change to be better people in future. And in fact, J.B. Priestley gives them that opportunity in the very final moments of the play. Mr. Burling turns to his family after the final phone call and says, that was the police. The girl has just died on her way to the infirmary after swallowing some disinfectant. And a police inspector is on his way here to ask some questions. The final stage direction reads, as they stare guiltily and dumbfounded, the curtain falls. No longer is the cast separated into Sheila and Eric and then Gerald and Mr and Mrs Burling. Rather, it says they stare guiltily, demonstrating that every character on stage is sharing in that feeling of guilt and remorse. So, the inspector has done his job. And even though the audience might be left wondering whether he was an angel or God or a conscience, or a supernatural figure, or a representation of socialism, or J.B. Priestley himself. It really doesn't matter. What matters was his message, and the social responsibility he finally got the Burling family, even the most stubborn members, to face. (laughs) 